And so we seek data subconsciously, like not intentionally, but subconsciously. Our brain seeks data to reinforce what we believe so that we don't have anxiety or internal conflict by introducing facts that, that are contrary to what we believe. Welcome back to the live drop. Before I get into our mad minute for this episode, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. And if you are enjoying the show as much as I'm enjoying making it, you can follow us on Twitter at The Live Drop, Instagram at The Live Drop, Facebook at The Live Drop, and there's more information at our website, thelivedrop.com. So please leave a review on iTunes if you care to. It helps us to continue to bring in fascinating guests and more listeners. Uh, It'd be greatly appreciated. I'm speaking with Lee J. Berman, sought-after professional mediator based in California. Though most in his profession are former attorneys, Lee J. recognized his keen ability to diffuse conflict and find resolution while working in corporate real estate. I wanted him on the show because the skills he maintains and teaches are highly applicable in the worlds of human intelligence and diplomacy. Listening, identifying the wants and underlying desires of opposing parties is an intuitive ability that he's used to resolve conflict and find compromise that leaves both parties with peace of mind. He also shares the darker side of how this intuition and skill can be used to exploit conflict. We talk about the paradox of the current political climate, how representatives might have more to be gained from conflict than from coming to a compromise. Begin transmission now. If you try to get somebody's information out of them by force, by threats, by leverage, you know, blackmail, those sorts of things in the intelligence world, you're just, you're calling into to play all of their training and everything that they've learned and how to resist all of that. And they'll fight you back because it's a battle of wills at that point. And what I do is, you know, metaphorically move my chair around their side of the table and sit next to them and go, what is it that's so important to you about holding out on this? And, you know, you know, and I know we're both trying to save thousands of lives here on both sides or whatever, you know, how can we do that? Why can't you and I just do that? And, and find through a lot of questions, Find out what their interests are, what their concerns are, and help them get them. Zig Ziglar has a quote that, that he uses all the time in, in, in sales training. and He says, you really can get what you want in life if you just help enough other people get what they want. And to me, that's kind of the mediator's mantra. That's my job every day is helping people get what they want so that I can help other people get what they want. And it, it just it, finding a reason for that give and take between them and that interplay and that interdependence between them, if I can, that's what makes it so interesting to me. Aligning your goals. Yeah. Your goals. I mean, you're obviously interested as, could you talk for a little bit about what, what it is you, you do, what types of mediations that you do? Sure. Um, Mine, I, I call it commercial broadly, but it's all kinds of businesses in every industry. I do, um, construction disputes and homeowner associations and, and failure to disclose all in the real estate world. I do employment cases and me too cases and wage and hour cases and things like that in the employment law world in entertainment. It's funny. I don't do a whole lot of entertainment contracts per se, but I deal with a lot of celebrities because we're here in LA in their other kinds of disputes that they have. And, and I've, I've worked with, Talk show hosts, you know, I've worked with rock bands and helped keep them together, which is a really cool thing. Um, I mean, there are bands you're listening to on the radio today that are only together because they came and sat with me and we, we figured out how to keep them together by meeting everybody's interests and things. And you're so, talking about Kiss, I hope. And, no, <laughs> are they still together? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, they, maybe you should call them up. <laughs> 
Maybe they could use some help. I think there's some <laughs> So it's a broad swath of all of that kind of stuff. I don't do divorce or family or child custody. I can talk about it, and I just obviously went through it, but, um, but it's not what I do. I mean, what I do is all this other uh, business kind of stuff. I would think that maybe divorce or child, those things would be a little bit more personal, maybe even more loaded. Or, yes. or am I am I kind of jumping to a conclusion? Nope, you're absolutely right. That's a, that's frankly that's part of why I don't do them because they can tend to be irrationally emotional. I do a lot of partnership dissolutions in business that are still emotional, and it's still about you know you stole that client from me four years ago, and you know that kind of stuff. But it's not so irrational as a husband and wife fighting over the tea towels because you know they both one doesn't want the other one to have them or, you know, whatever. It's, it's not usually that irrational. And um, for me, I, I went into the business world with this because I thought that it was a rational way of resolving conflict and solving problems. It, it's the common sense aspect of what I do and bringing that common sense perspective to a room where people are fighting because they're emotional. And I can usually get them to see that. But in a divorce case, there was no overcoming that. They were just emotional, period. Have you found that even in uh, business cases or with bands that things are, well, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at, I, I mean, I, you told some stories before about when you ask somebody, listen, I want to, I want to settle this. We should, I want to mediate this. I want to help you mediate this. I want to help you come to a solution. And you sit down, like you said, you pull up a chair and you say, what is it that you want? Have you found that that want is something different? Have you had to do a little bit of digging and help, help somebody even discover what they want? Yeah. Oh Yeah. Um, all the time. And, and the best example I use is, you know, somebody says, I have to have the house in a divorce. Well, so what I ask them is uh, the question I use all day, all the time is what about that is so important to you? Because it starts to get them talking about themselves rather than the asset, the thing that they're fighting over. So when they say, I got to have the house, I say, what about that's so important to you? And they say, well, continuity for the kids because they're going to live with me and it's close to their school and I want financial security. And so now the question is, can we get continuity for the kids close to the school, financial security for them without the house? Mm -hmm. And now we're working on the things that they're actually fighting for. The house is just what represents it to them. But are there other things that could also represent that for them? So so it's it's trying to help people identify what they have attached to these things. My old, in the training programs, the old story I use is the dollar bill. I used to say it's just paper and ink until a guy from the U.S. Treasury corrected me that it's cotton and ink. But, uh, you know, if you had a hundred thousand of these $1 bills on a deserted island, what good would they be to you? And, you know, people joke, oh, you can make a boat or a fire, right? But, but the point is they're really not worth anything other than what we attach to them. And people want it for different reasons. They want it for safety, security, a roof over their head, or they want it for status or, you know, power so they can boss people around or, you know, we all have different reasons we want it. But the it is the same thing. It's just what we attach to it and we give value to it because it means something to us. So the house means something to the mom who wants the continuity for the kids or whatever, the, 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 the corner office or the key clients or the name on the door is what partners fight over in a law firm or something. So, you know, people fight over things because they attach meaning. And my job is to figure out what that meaning is they're attaching and help them see, help us see if there is a way to get that for them. So for you as a mediator, are there, like, I, I can see how, you know, you get, a, you get a variety of different, different wants for people setting claims. I need to have this copyright or I need to have this something or other. Are, are there, 
any recurring underlying needs that you see showing up in your work? Greed and ego are ever present. They're in every situation, whether it's greed out of fear and necessity and, and fear of like ending up homeless or whether it's greed as in I earned all this money and I deserve it, which is the ego attached to it. So that always comes up. And then a lot of times it's power balance. Um, it's one person in a sexual harassment case, for example, if somebody has been belittled and had her rear end smacked a bunch of times and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and she kept the job because she's a single mom and had to you know pay the bills and it was a good job and it paid her well. At some point, it, it, it's time for them to win and have their comeuppance. And, and it's a little bit of the, I'll show you who's boss. And so it's the retaliation against power. I, I, I've never found a good way to say this. And man, if you can help me, I, I, I'd be indebted. But whenever you suppress something, it's going to come back later in spades. We, you know, we sort of know that, right? Every action begets an equal and opposite reaction, right? But it's, it's part of what we see like in the Catholic church with the molestation cases, because you're suppressing something unnaturally. When one person dominates another with power unnaturally, the other person comes back and she lights the bed on fire with him in it or, you know, something like that. I mean, it, that it always comes back. And a lot of times the lawsuits that I see are that retaliation of, of being suppressed too long and flexing their muscles and going out and hiring the big bad bulldog to fight the fight for them in, in, in litigation. And so I see a lot of that. I see a lot of, he can't treat me like this anymore in, in employment cases and sexual harassment cases and, and bad partnership cases. So it's, it, that's another theme is, is turning the tables on power. Yeah, because you talked a little before about almost a timeline of for negotiation. It seems like what you're talking about is, I mean, there's the beginnings, there's the beginnings of a conflict. Then I think there's this term right for negotiation or right for yeah. mediation. Yeah, right. It seems like in that situation where retaliation comes in, it was right for, for mediation, but then it started to rot. Yeah. <laughs> and well, it started to smell. And then you don't even remember what the, what the conflict was. It's just a mess. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of that way. Um, the interesting thing is what people think of when they think of mediation is not necessarily the same thing. We use the word, assuming that everybody thinks the same thing when we say it. But you said, I think last time, maybe after we finished recording, something about, you know, you would have thought that a mediator was going to be more facilitative and just gentle and kind and, and that I'm a little bit more assertive and forceful in, in how I do. Yeah, I, like my wife used to say to me, you're a mediator, how can you get so upset? <laughs> Sometimes you have to get upset to get things done. And, you know, So yeah. people come to mediation for different reasons. And if 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 we underestimate it and think it's just to sort of make everybody be nice to each other, or maybe that's overestimating it. That doesn't, that's not always what it looks like when they walk in the room. Sometimes it's her saying, okay, now I got you where I want you. Now I'm going to, you have to listen to me now. Because sometimes it's also the first time people come together and actually have a discussion. You know, they go to their lawyers and he did this to me, he did that to me or whatever. And, and they have this fight and this lawsuit and the litigation and the depositions and the discovery. And they do all this stuff, but they never sit down and talk to each other. And, and I get people sometimes, even in like sexual harassment cases, I get the guy, the defendant, the alleged harasser going like, I don't even know why we're here. And that says to me, like if they'd had this discussion that we're facilitating here today, six months ago, they could have saved themselves all this trouble. And he might've been able to be more willing to apologize or, you know, sit with her and try to understand it and, you know, all that kind of stuff, if that's the situation. So that's the ripeness piece and the too ripe. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's also um, 
that that mediation takes on a different form than one that's just a compromise where people are going f you no f you and and all they really want to do is walk each walk away from the table with as much money as they can at the end of the day you know i've got some of those going right now that are just exasperating because they don't want to have any dialogue they don't want to dig into the issues they just want millions of dollars or no it should be tens of thousands of dollars and and banging the table over money and so it, you know my job I, you and i both keep saying is to help them see those underlying motivations and things and there are some days they just don't want to go there. They just don't even want to get into it. Mm -hmm. they, they just want money. Um, so it depends on the relationship and how they walk in. If they've had a long-term relationship together, there's more of that sort of working through issues. And frankly, there's more of a foundation to build on. I ask two partners, so what made you get together and partner up to start with? And they start extolling the other one's virtues and talents and things, which is why they became partners. And it's sort of like taking them back to that first date in a, in a, uh, in a way. They remember why they got together rather than, oh, that jerk, you know, cut my bonus or, you know, whatever they're, they're fighting about in the moment. So every day is different. And what mediation means to the people who are in that room really depends on, on what they're right for and what they need when they're there. So um, a lot of my colleagues will, uh, will do every day the same. I mean, there, there's some mediators who sort of have one arrow in their quiver and they walk in the room and shoot it and it works most of the time. Um, but but really, you one arrow in their quiver? Does that mean their schedule? Uh, no, no, no. One arrow in their one quiver. Arrow in their quiver. One, one bullet in their gun is all they've got. They just have one tool. You know, they, I like the quiver, though. That sounds pretty. Yeah, I guess questions just pile on top of each other with this thing because good. last time we, we spoke, you said, yeah, there is, a, there is an element of, of, of sales going on because I said, you, you seem you seem like you could be a, you could be a forceful person. You could seem like you could impose your will on people. No problem whatsoever. And, um, you know, mediators aren't necessarily, you know, meditators. I mean, right. you're, um, you have an agenda as well. It, it, the closing technique, if you will, that I use most often is somebody walks in the door and says, I'm never paying more than $50,000 today to settle this case. If they're a defendant and, Plaintiff comes in and wants 650000 in the morning and we have a whole day of negotiation. And at the end of the day, they're paying you know, $115,000. Instead of going, yay, I got a deal and everybody sign really quick before anyone changes their mind, I'm the opposite. I take that plaintiff in the, or that defendant rather, in the other room and I say, so help me understand. You came in this morning and you said you weren't going to pay more than $50,000. Now you're about to sign an agreement that you're going to write a check next week for $115,000. Help me understand what changed. Because what I want them to do is explain to me in their words what their reasoning is for why they're doing it. Because they're going to have to go explain this to some imaginary board of directors, whether it's their business partners or their spouse or their, their parents or adult children or somebody. They have to go home and tell the people that they've been telling about this dispute for months and months what they decided to do. And they're going to have to be able to explain why they paid 115 instead of 50 and I want them to rehearse it with me. So I push back so they can sell me on why they want to do it. So that it's theirs, they own it, they can explain it. They'll say, when I came in this morning, I didn't know this, this, and this. So I learned new things today. And I didn't realize that that witness was actually going to testify for them. I thought I could count on her, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it helps secure the deal so that it lasts, which is more important to me than going, yeah, I got a W, you know, I got a victory. So, so my technique is a little bit less like, let me just persuade them across the finish line. 
Um, it, it really is, let me make sure they're locked in and, and understand what they're doing and that they want this and that they have reasons for it. Yeah. I mean, this might be going a little bit off brand for my podcast, but I, <laughs> I have a neighbor whose power line goes over my property ah. and it's a little bit low and there's some trees and I think whoever lived here before never really went up there, but I made a little walkway and a little place where you could sit and look at the view. And I think, you know, I would really like to get this cable taken out of there. And I, but I haven't, my neighbor, we get along well, but I haven't called him with it. I haven't, I haven't introduced the conflict yet. You know what I mean? I, I've even, you know, talked to some other people and ran in, cut this garbage truck. Now, now I have, <laughs> but anyway, I talked to somebody from DWP and they, and they said, Oh, you've got to, uh, yeah, man, you got to call a uh, trouble man. Trouble man. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, God, I don't know what that guy does, but I want that to be my job. Yeah. <laughs> you got to, you got to call a trouble. You got to call a trouble man. I was like, what That's the awesome. heck's a trouble man? He said, well, it's kind of, it's not really a linesman, but you call the DVP and tell them about it. No, they'll send a trouble man out. That's sort of like what you do, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like DWP has a trouble man that just goes out on the, like, what's the trouble? I imagine he just yeah. shows up and says, what's the trouble here? So I'm starting to think to myself, okay, do I want this power line? You know, what, what is it? Do I want, is it that I don't want to share the airspace? I, I want a better view. Like, what is it? I guess, do you have any advice, like, before I bring this up? Should I realize what it is that I really want? What it is that I really like? Because you're figuring out how to broach the conflict in a way that's going to be collaborative and, and not, you know, not cause a fight, right? Right. So the easiest, lowest hanging fruit right now is the PG&E lines that caused all the fires we just had. And you can say to him, look, you know, I, we have maybe a half of 1% risk that that thing sparks up there and starts to fire up here on the hill and burns all our houses down. But if we bury it, we have 0% risk. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when, when you add that to, it would really make this, you know, this perch that I've built uh, more enjoyable and, uh, I was thinking about even a gazebo up here. And I don't know if there's a way that he could build a path up there and go up there anytime he wanted to also, or, you know, that kind of thing. But, but finding the win-win in the way you propose it to him, um, the, the what's in it for him, not just I want, but, you know, what if we both had this? Wouldn't that be better for both of us? Well, I can think this is another question. Like, what's the difference between a mediation and a negotiation? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, so, the first question, what's the difference? Truly, the only difference is mediation has a neutral party between you, mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, it's just face-to-face, -face and that's negotiation. The skill set and the strategies are exactly the same. So when I teach a mediation class, it's a five-day class, and that's all it is. That's all you have to take to become a mediator in, in most every state in the nation because there's no licensure or certification or anything around that. It's You just take a 40-hour class and... You can get on most you know, panels or whatever to be selected as a mediator. But when we teach that five-day class, the first two days of it are all negotiation theory because what we're doing as mediators is just facilitating a negotiation. So what we teach is you should begin collaboratively and, and go in with, with you know, what we talked about that are reasons why he might want to do it to you know, some concept around we're going to share the cost or, you know, let's find out from DWP what it would cost or, you know, whatever. Um, because that's an easy ask, by the way. Rather than are you willing to share the cost and do this, which requires him to commit on the first conversation, if you say, what would you think if I were to call DWP and at least just find out what it costs? Mm -hmm. then, you know, that's harder for him to say no to. So it's an easy first step. 
there's a good chance he goes, yeah, it can't hurt to find out what it costs. And then you come back and if it's, you know, eight grand, that's one thing. If it's 30 grand, that's another thing. And, and so at least then you're sort of fact finding together and it builds that pattern of we've learned this, what should we learn next? But it's we, us, our, let's together. Right. Rather, we talked. We talked before about how you could use this for the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> and what, you, what, what you're saying is something that's kind of one of the steps of an elicitation, right? Is you get somebody or ask somebody to do something very easily for you. Hey, yeah. Can I borrow a quarter for for parking so I can run over and grab something? You know. Yeah. So somebody gets used to. Somebody takes that first step of of giving something. Yeah. To you, and it makes the next one. You know, ultimately, yeah. your you know your goal, whatever your goal is, is, is uh-huh. that mediation or negotiation, or do you want to, you know, manipulate somebody? It's opening that that transactional, opening the store. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, you know, the flip side of it is there's a study where a nonprofit went on street corners in a big city, and they did the opposite. They shot high, so people would say no, and then the f- people felt indebted to them, and they felt bad for saying no. So the next question was easier for them to say yes to. So they'd meet people on the street and they'd say, we work with this children's foster society, something, something, something. Um, Would you be willing to adopt a child? And the people are like, "Uh, no. And they said, well, let me ask you this then. Would you be at least willing to let a child come to your work one day and follow you around and and at least learn what it is to to see what you do for a living? And the people feel like they need to say yes to this because they said no to the really big ask. And they're like, by comparison, that's easier to say yes to. So then they, this is sure, you know, here's my card, call my secretary, I'll tell her you'll call, you know, and, and these kids were getting these experiences, which is what they were after to start with, of course. But by asking the big ask first, I mean, like if you said to him, I, I don't know that this would be the most effective way to approach him, but by example, you could say, so I'm thinking of getting all the neighbors together, all up and down this, this power line and let us all chip in and bury this thing and, you know. That, that's a really big thing. He's, he's liable to go like, good luck, dude. Like, you know, I, I'm out. But if yeah. you go, hey, just for you and me, what if we thought about this? And then give him the reasons why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what should I not do? I love watching your wheel spin when you start. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm just thinking, I'm just kind of playing this out. Like, what, what should I not do? What should you not do in a situation like that? Don't be egotistical. You know, make sure that, that you're humble and collaborative with him. Don't not listen to him. Make sure that you do listen to him when he starts to talk. So you can't be like a bulldozer just pushing to persuade. You've got to really be hearing his responses, his objections, his fears, his concerns, you know, all of that. And uh, don't be conclusive. Come at him really open. Don't be like, I think we should do this. But, but be more like, you know, I wonder if there's a way to do this and would you have any objection if I reached out to the city just to find out what's involved? You know, that kind of thing. Like, you know, it's on your property too. So I don't want to do it without asking you, you know, that kind of humility. So don't be arrogant or pushy or conclusive. Like you've made your mind up and you're just trying to bring him over to your side. Like go explore it together. And then I don't know who he is or what he does for a living, but part of your curse in a negotiation like this is he knows that you're a successful actor and he's liable to think, oh, well, this guy, you know, he's rich, he can pay for it, you know, that kind of thing. So um, you've really got to be the, the humble guy next door. I don't know what your relationship is like with him, but the humble guy next door, um, because he's, he's going to lean toward erring on the side of assuming that 
you're used to having everything your way and you're just trying to make him bend to your will like other people do because you're famous or you're, you know, recognized or whatever, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. In this town, there's a little bit of pushback from, from those who aren't in entertainment against those who are. I mean, nobody comes up to me and asks me for my autograph at dinner or stops me on the street and says, hey, I love your work, but, you know, it, you get that enough. Well, I, I wish it still happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other any industries or any businesses that are like that where people have a certain bias toward it? Like, oh, oh yeah, athletes. I mean, you know, same thing. It, it, they're entertainment too, in the sense. Um, I, all I can think of when you said basketball player, I started thinking of that one basketball player that used to go to North North Korea. <laughs> was it Robin? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Robin, I used to go to North Korea, and it was almost like Trump was doing the same thing, right? Governments, but especially ours, um, are big on sending people with political connections and a big name in to be mediators. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they sent Cuomo's kid in to mediate like the, the Israeli-Palestinian thing or something. And to me, that's nothing more than showboating because the people they're putting in there have zero mediation training and, and as far as I know, zero skill set. I got a colleague, a good buddy of mine, who wrote a book about 13 different international peace negotiations that were done by politicians and if they had been done by mediators, how the mediators wouldn't have made this mistake or that mistake and ha- had a better chance of actually reaching peace between these countries that were at war. And it's called Elusive Peace, the book. Mm-hmm. And it basically says you, you should be putting trained mediators in these roles. Uh, you know, at some point, Trump or Obama or whoever shouldn't be over there doing negotiations between people. And, you know, Jimmy Carter did it, but Jimmy Carter was a trained mediator. You know, I mean, he has a mediation center, the Carter Center at, at Emory. Was he really? He was a trained mediator. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he, is it obviously how, how he, he approached things differently? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, look, this is a guy who, you know, walked his inaugural motorcade instead of being in a limousine and, you know, things right. like that. He, he tried to come in and do things really differently and he got roasted for it. And, you know, the timing of 1980 or whatever was probably not the right time or 78, whatever it was. The hostage crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he had some really good ideas, but the, the, the point is that he was a mediator. And so he was kind of an exception to the rule. And, you know, there is a, a Carter Institute at Emory university in Atlanta, but for the most part, I think it's, it should be beneath the, the dignitaries role to go do this. They should be dispatching diplomats who were trained mediators. George Mitchell in Northern Ireland, they said what he did that was so magical over there that nobody had been able to do for 60 years before him. If you interviewed the people who were part of the talks, they said he outlistened us. How do you break that down? It's just really about, you know, we, we talked at the top about helping people find what their motivations are and what their interests are and what they really want. And they have to vent a little bit about the history and the frustration they've had with the other side and all that sort of thing. The other side's not going to listen to that. But a mediator can be a surrogate listener in a lot of ways, which is something maybe we should say on the show. Um, Mm -hmm. A surrogate listener, so they can feel heard and they can hear themselves saying some of these things and go, wow, I didn't really realize I felt that way. So a really good listener has people saying things that they didn't plan or anticipate. And I, I mean, virtually every day in my rooms, I have people saying to me, I never told anybody that before, or I really didn't have the intention of telling you that, or I didn't even realize I felt that way until it just came out. You know, that kind of stuff, those epiphanies that come when you invite people, you don't just let them talk, but you invite them to talk and you, you 
engage them and you ask questions that make them go inside and think and feel. And that's a lot of what I do. That The role of a mediator is a little bit understanding the law and how something would play out at trial if they went all the way through. It's a little bit of business and practical approach. It's a little bit psychology and people skills. And you know, most of the most advanced mediators I know, uh, we've all sat in these workshops where we've dissected brains and learned about neuroscience and what happens with people when they're in conflict and you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it's a little bit of all those things plus the negotiation skills and understanding how negotiation strategies work and all of that. And when you combine the negotiation, the law, the business, the psychology, and, and uh, all those different elements, it, it actually requires a media to bring a lot to the table. But this is the psychological aspect, the listening part, and letting people talk through an issue until they learn more about it themselves just by processing it out loud. That's kind of the psychological piece of helping them figure out what those motivations are. Then you turn to the negotiation piece and go, okay, now that those are your, your motivations and that's really what we're here to get for you today. Now let's figure out how we get it. Now let's strategize. How do we get the people in the other room to give you that so that you walk away with it at the end of the day? I was thinking the other, I was just thinking the other day about this. I thought, what, how do how do animals handle conflict? Usually power. You think of the two, you know, lions or, or something, you know, coming at each other and, and just fighting for dominance. In, in the animal kingdom, that's usually how it goes. There, there are examples. And of course, we mediators, we see these, you know, videos all the time of, of animals kind of working together collaboratively and stuff, but it's really the minority. But there's a moment with it, with what I think most, which surprises me with animals, because we were talking before about what parts of the brain are used in a conflict, mm-hmm. right? And you said when the... Amygdala. Was it the the amygdala, when that is engaged, then you're going to have, your job's going to be a little bit yeah. more difficult, but, right? Because that's your, your snake brain. But there's a moment when an animal admits, okay, mm-hmm. you got me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it, for me, it seems like, as a human, it seems like a real, that, that takes an awful lot of higher processing to be able to kind of admit that, okay, I've lost and I'm, yeah. I, I, I need to move or change my position or something. I've lost this one. Animals seem to click mm-hmm. with that. It, it, it's interesting. Um, they will recognize at some point that they have to survive to protect their tribe, right? You know, the, the, the right. lion king of the jungle needs to still protect the, the tribe. Thank right. you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Ironically, right. <laughs> Humans, I think will, will be a little bit more self-destructive because their ego, I think is stronger. You know, you'll have people pull out a gun and shoot somebody, even though they know they're going to spend the rest of their lives in jail. At least, you know, they're, they're feeding into the amygdala that has them triggered, that has them more out of control. And the ability to do harm to others indirectly, you know, with a gun or, you know, a car or whatever, is more accessible to us where lions only have, you know, hand-to-hand combat. And if you feel like, you know, that guy's bigger, and he, every time I come at him, he, you know, I end up on my back, he beats me, it's, it, it's logical that you say, I've got to survive and I've got to back away from this. Um, but people just go, well, let me just get a bigger tool, right? Let me go drive a car through his front living room or you know, let me take a, you know, a gun or my buddies or something and drive by the house, hanging out the windows of the car with automatic weapons. There's a certain ability we have to, dehu- to collapse people into that thing. Uh, my friend Ken Cloak, who's another colleague of mine, says this in, in a book he wrote called Conflict Revolution with a V. And he says, and, and the subtitle is mediating 
war, injustice, and terrorism. And what he says is, in order for them to perpetrate those kinds of awful things, like a drive-by shooting into a house when you know that there are children in there, those people have to so dehumanize and collapse the people in that house into that thing they most hate about them so that they're no longer humans. They're, they're just this thing that you hate that allows you to shoot at them. It's the same thing, he says, that a husband and wife do to each other standing in the kitchen. They completely dehumanize each other and they start fighting over who, you know, whose turn it is to take out the trash or whatever thing they're fighting about. In that argument, they say things, you know, the things that you wish you could take back, you say those things. The only thing that allows you to say those things to the person that you love most on this planet is to dehumanize them into that thing you're so mad about, mad at them about, rather than remembering the wholeness of who they are. And I think when you're a lion in the jungle, you can't forget the wholeness of who that guy is who's coming at you right now because it's in your face. And, and there's a, a life quality that doesn't leave that kind of a setting. But we have, because we're so much more complex as beings and our lives are so much more complex, we have all kinds of ways to hurt people. And you know, whether it's passive aggressive or you know, politically diabolical or something, in a business, you know, one senior vice president will screw over and step on another senior vice president. And that other one is going to have his comeuppance one day and he's going to go behind the back to the president and try and get the first guy fired. And, you know, it, we, we have all these, these complex mechanisms for screwing with each other. And so that's why for me, I, I, I can't just take their guns away or make them dismiss their lawsuit. If they still hate each other and they're still going to fight, I've got to get get to the root cause, the underlying thing that has them fighting. I'd have to rehumanize the conflict so they see each other as real people. And this is part of where we go to, you know, how did you two first decide to become partners or, you know, whatever. This is a tangent, and I don't think we talked about it last time. There are two names for what I do. One is dispute resolution, and the other is conflict management. Interestingly, the dispute resolution programs in universities all live in law schools because you're resolving the dispute, which is the lawsuit. You know, he did this to me and he owes me money and you know, whatever. That's the dispute, right? But the underlying conflict still exists. I, I may have said last time that if you've got two vice presidents fighting over the corner office that was just vacated because the senior vice president retired, they're going to fight over that office and the HR person or whoever's making that decision can flip a coin and go, okay, you win. But that settles the dispute. It doesn't settle the conflict. So the conflict management or conflict resolution programs live in the behavioral sciences. They live in graduate schools of education and psychology and all of that around the country. And they call them that where the law schools call it dispute resolution because conflict resolution means sitting them both down and saying, what about that office is so important to you? And one of them says, I've been here the longest. I've been here since the beginning. I'm part of the fiber of this company. and I deserve it. And the other one says, yeah, but you guys are on the verge of bankruptcy. I came in three, four years ago, brought all the new clients. And if it wasn't for me, you'd be out on the street and I deserve it because I'm the breadwinner. And what they both need is just more recognition. The office is one way of, you know, that's what they've attached recognition to. Mm -hmm. But the truth is they both just need more recognition. If the company is going to go forward and function, these two are going to keep working together because you can decide the corner office and then they're going to fight over who gets the, the, the senior VP who left, who gets his assistant, who knows how to get things done around the company and who gets the parking space next to the elevator, who gets the golf club membership and you know, all of that. There's no end to what, how this 
underlying conflict will keep bubbling up and manifesting in, a, in an immediate dispute. And so a lot of what I do is conflict resolution, not just dispute resolution. You know, the, the question of a separate Palestinian state, I think that's, you know, you're looking at, you're looking at yeah. uh, managing a conflict. When somebody said, oh, you, wow, you must have really had to manage the conflict on that show because you, you didn't have the power to change certain things and certain points of view were going to differ. So you, do you, is that one of yeah, the first things I, you do is you, you kind of identify? Yeah. Well, like when you tell people, listen, we're going to have to manage that conflict as opposed to solve it, how do, um, how do people react to that? It depends. If they're going to have an ongoing relationship, then it needs to be managed. And I mean, I've gone into organizations and taken those two vice presidents uh, metaphorically and probably spent a whole day with them. And at the end of the day, they agreed, okay, we're going to go back to having lunch every Monday like we used to. And we're going to talk to each other directly and not to each other's second in command and you know all that sort of thing. It, sometimes it is about management if there's an ongoing relationship. But if it's a partnership dissolution or a single business transaction or a, an accident, if I rear end you on the road, we go to mediation and I'm not even there. My insurance adjuster shows up in my place and you show up with your neck brace on and you know try and get as much from my insurance adjuster as you can. I don't really care as long as it goes away. There seems to be less mediation going on. I mean, with social media, there's the rise of extremism and people are just hearing these echo chambers of what they think. And there was, there was an interview, there was a woman who was on CNN and she was interviewing some people who were, they were Trump supporters and she was asking them and they, you know, she, she was going piece by piece. Why do you want a wall or why do you believe this or why do you, whatever it was. And this one woman was saying why she believed mm. a certain thing and she was kind of quoting things that weren't real right? That, that were sort of manipulated in the press that hadn't really happened. But you could see in this conversation that this woman didn't want to admit, even in the face of reason or, or logic, that, that what she was talking about, it wasn't making any sense. What do you do in a current situation where you have like extremism and something like, you know, rationalism or, um, you know, it, reality isn't really observed or valued? Um, neuroscientists will tell you that our brains have what what's called a confirmation bias. We stroke ourselves by releasing good chemicals in the brain when we find things that confirm our beliefs. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly biased toward the side of confirming what we already believe. So you know, if you buy a Honda Civic and you go out on the street and start driving, everything that you see everywhere you look, you see Honda Civics because the brain is seeking them out. The reticular activator in the brain seeks them out in order to say, see, you made a good choice, you made a good choice, you made a good choice, and keep reaffirming that. Mm. And so we seek data subconsciously, like not intentionally, but subconsciously. Our brain seeks data to reinforce what we believe so that we don't have anxiety or internal conflict by introducing you know, facts that, that are contrary to what we believe. We have this cognitive dissonance when we think, I'm a good person, but I did this bad thing. How do I live with that? And so we rationalize and we justify and we build this whole story about why it was the right thing to do in that situation. And anybody would have done that so that we can feel better about it. You know, the, the example you're giving, this supporter hearing non-facts, it creates too much cognitive dissonance. And they did the same thing with Bush and Gore in that election too. They did studies where they gave them wrong facts and they still glommed onto them because they so had to confirm what their belief system was. I mean, we see it in zealots of every kind, whether it's in religion or in politics or you know anything that you can think of. And in, in these cases that I mediate, it's the same thing. 
people all get, you know, one room full of one side, you know, the plaintiff side or the defense side or whatever, they get locked into their belief systems so that when I leave that room to go talk with the folks in the other room, they sit there and fire each other up. Oh, that was great what you said. Oh, and this is so right. And oh, there's such bad people in the other room. And they just, they keep reinforcing that for each other. So every time I walk into a room, my goal constantly is to have to diffuse that and bring them back to a neutral perspective, which is usually the one I'm trying to bring into the room and help them see things through a lens other than the one that's all sugar-coated that they're all looking through at the same time together. So changing people's perspectives on an issue, on a conflict, on the other people is really important um, if we're going to get to a resolution. Otherwise, everybody's just right all the time. It's God, it feels so good to be right. I know, right? It does. <laughs> it, I mean, funny, right? Because it releases dopamine and all this great stuff in your yeah. brain. And, you know, and so, of course, it feels good, right? It's I like, like this story, this story about Jeff Bezos where he was in a car with his parents and his grandmother was smoking and he was a little kid and he said, he did the math from this article that he'd read and he said, Grandma, if you keep smoking, you're only going to live for another nine years. And she was hurt. Uh, her ego was involved and she was crying. And his father later called him aside and he said, you know, son, you're right possibly, but you're going to, I want you to know that it takes much more effort to be kind than to be clever. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like that's something people sort of gloss over. They forget about nowadays. It's like, well, but I'm right. Yeah. And what's really interesting is both when we're in conflict and like you said earlier, when we're negotiating and don't want to give an inch in both instances, we tend to lean toward clever to go. Yeah. But and we play yeah, but all day with trying to, you know, throw facts out or logic or reasoning. You should hear some of the nonsense that comes out of some of the lawyers' mouths that I'm with all day long when they're advocating for their client as they're backpedaling and just trying to make the story still work. But yeah, the, the kindness and the diplomacy is a whole nother level. And, you know, they're in conflict. They're triggered, all of them, even the lawyers sometimes. And what they need from me is that little bit of, detachment and neutrality. You know, good lawyers are able to maintain that too. And they, they truly turn to their clients and they really are counselors at law. Um, and they'll say, look, these are your choices. These are the outcomes you should look at. Yeah, there's a good chance that we can make a jury believe what you just said, but don't forget, they're going to be saying this other thing. And it's fun for me to watch lawyers have that professional detachment and really be good at advising their clients from a centered place but there are other lawyers who are like, yeah, my client's right. And I'm going to fight to the, you know, and, and, and they're being clever rather than rational and helpful. It's, there's a big range of lawyers and, and which ones are good at what they do and which ones aren't. Um, as mediator, I'm there sort of as an insurance policy to make sure that there, that there's a buffer that, you know, in one room they say, we're only going to give them X dollars or we'll only do this for them or whatever. But you tell them, I still think that they're an SOB or whatever. And I go walk in the other room and say, Hey, good news. We're making progress. They've agreed to do this now. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit extreme. It's funny. Yeah. Uh. But it, it, because I, it needs to be received in the best possible light in the other room. And if, if you hand somebody a gift with one hand and then slap them at the same time with your other hand, you're defeating the whole purpose of giving them the gift. You might as well just polish it up and hand it to them humbly with both hands and say, you know, here, I really want you to have this, but you know, you're going to get more bang for the buck that way. And they'll actually hear what you're offering instead of just being upset with the tone with which it was offered. So that's that kindness versus cleverness. I think kindness over cleverness. 
Well, thank you very much for talking to me about this. And I've certainly been enlightened about your profession and found out how how its tendrils kind of go into all all elements of human behavior and experience right now. It seems like nowadays a mediator is a is a skill that's it's going to be more important than ever. Yeah, unfortunately, we say conflict is a growth industry, and yeah, there's a there's a demand for people who do what we do well. I think. Yeah, thanks very much. Where can people find you? Um, easiest place is uh, mediationtools.com, all one word in plural. It's being redesigned as we speak, but yeah, that's that's probably the headquarters for my mediation practice. Email is L-E-P-J-A-Y-E-J at mediationtools.com. Cool. Thanks, DJ. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for being on the live drop. Mark, it's my pleasure. I love the podcast and I appreciate you having me on it. That was my chat with mediator Lee J. Berman. His work, classes, and further reference can be found at his website, mediationtools.com. End of transmission. Transmission.